Welcome to Love Extremist Radio. Being a love extremist means committing to and choosing love as joyful activism. I'm your host, Ethan Lipsitz, self-proclaimed love extremist. Love can exist everywhere, and yet, when talking about it, we all seem to define it differently. There are many environments and individuals to whom love seems lost, or was never there to begin with. I want to engage myself, my guests, and you to confront love, get to know it as it appears in many forms, and learn from others who have love stories to share. I'll focus on three frames of love, self-love, love in partnership, and love in community. My intention is to uncover and share stories that shed light on love in new and often forgotten ways. Happy 2020, y'all. I believe that in this day and age, spreading love without expectation is an act of extremism. With that belief in mind, I've set up a challenge for you all and myself to get online and spread some love. If you're interested in taking action and deepening your love practice this year, check out www.extremist.love slash liberation dash challenge. That's www.extremist.love slash liberation dash challenge. I'll post the link in the show notes and hope you join me on the Love Extremist Liberation Challenge. Peace. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Love Extremist Radio. I am at the house studio in Mount Washington with Ashley Byrne. Before I introduce her, I want to do something that I haven't done yet on Love Extremist Radio, but I've done in gatherings, which is just acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Tonga, Chumash, and Gabrileño people. And I'd like to pay our respect to their elders, both past and present. Moving forward, Ashley is an associate director of the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, otherwise known as PETA. She has overseen several successful PETA campaigns, including some of the most provocative, and will travel anywhere in the world and do whatever it takes to help stop cruelty to animals. Her work to promote animal rights has landed her on national television networks and programs including CBC News, CNN, CTV News, Fox News, Inside Edition, and MSNBC, as well as NPR. She's been interviewed by the LA Times, our local paper, the Miami Herald, the New York Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, among others. And her campaigns have been covered by, I'm going to butcher this, but Agency France Press, something like this. The Associated Press, HuffPost, Reuters, and U.S. News and World Report. Welcome, Ashley. Thank Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So what is your bio behind the bio? What's your story? That's a great question. Well, I grew up right here in L.A. Nice. I moved here until uh, I was about 16. Cool. Then moved to Colorado with my family and stayed there to go to college and I started to get involved in the punk scene when nice. I was you know, in ninth grade, and that started to turn me on to activism and to social justice issues. What um, were some of the issues in the punk scene at the time? You know, I think what, um, what really grabbed me first and foremost were feminist issues. Mm-hmm. 
at the very end of junior high, been exposed to, been going to a school, even though my family was not involved in, in this religion, of, it was run by like a Southern Baptist church. Okay. They, they held very, very anti-woman, very sexist beliefs, and mm. they heavily brought that into the curriculum, mm. um, into these chapel services that you, know, you would have at school. Fortunately, I had been raised in a household where um, that was unthinkable. I mean, I I didn't even really think that people held those beliefs anymore. And Mm. so that really just blew my mind. And so I started to become interested in feminism and in, uh, you know, women's liberation from both from unjust laws and from uh, the ways that society was still oppressing us. Right. And so when I encountered uh, the punk scene and the riot girl scene, it just mm. clicked. And then I, it just opened me up to a whole world of other issues, yeah. um, you wow. know, in, including the fight for just human liberation in general across all spectrums mm. um, on the basis of sexual orientation and race and, and eventually to animal rights issues as well, Yeah, uh, which, you know, set the course for a, a large part of my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember growing up, my, my friends who would have identified with the punk scene more were very much into being straight edge. Was that part of the culture when, when you were growing up? Actually, yes. And and I, I was, I did consider myself straight edge for mm. a handful of years. And uh, and those, the things I learned being part of that, again, um, just really framed so much of my life. I mean, in terms of, you know, a lot of the straight edge movement was involved in animal rights. So right, absolutely. I ended up educated uh, about those issues. And then also just about um, the ways that society, you know, that kind of markets these things to us that keep us very complacent and mm. that, you know, that calm us down and we should be fired up, you know. And um, so it really, it just, it got me to question everything. You know, I think I was definitely one of those kids who had a lot of teenage rebellion in me, a lot of that teenage yeah. angst. But the right. amazing thing sure about school helped with that. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the amazing thing about punk rock was that it channeled that into something mm. that wasn't just um, free floating and destructive and, you know, aimed at, you know, just any place. It, it actually helped me realize that, you know, a lot of this angst was there for a reason mm-hmm. and that there were constructive positive things that you could you could do with that yeah absolutely yeah so i I really consider you know um kind of stumbling into that movement one of the best things that ever happened that's amazing yeah so were were you going to shows like in the valley or was there stuff going on where was the scene was it downtown when i sort of first began to be involved in this uh when i was still in los angeles you know yeah there were there were shows in I, I remember going to shows in Hollywood and cool. um, but actually so much of it this is <laughs> this is the 90s so yeah I mean I know there were people who were online then I wasn't a lot of this for me was through zines and nice. you know and like albums like literally like vinyl albums sure. and my dad lived in London at the time oh, cool. and so I would go there during the summer and you know he be at work and I'd kind of be cut loose to run around and, yeah. um, you know, and, and just explore the city. And so I would spend a lot of time there searching, you know, for 
from Riot Girl zines and, and albums and things like that, you know, in record stores. Because again, this was before you could just sort of order things online. So right. um, it was, you know, so I, I sort of would come across them that way. And, um, and, and I also went to a lot of shows there. And, um, and so that was, you know, being, being a teenager, you know, I only sort of had a certain amount of freedom as it is. Um, but um, being able to order these zines that people were making in, you know, Olympia, Washington, Washington right. D.C., and these sort of hotbeds of, um, of the punk scene at the time, yeah. um, just opened me up to a world of issues and of activism and music that I just found so inspiring. It's really interesting, actually, thinking about that time. There were like the cafes, right? Yeah. The record stores were in any given city, where it's like this is where the folks congregate of a certain, you know, background, totally. you know what I mean? And, yeah. and I don't know if that still exists as deeply. I think there's, there are outposts in every city, but it feels like, yeah, it's really moved online in many ways. And a lot of those small kind of community hubs have kind of become digitized, which is interesting. That's such a great point because exactly. I remember back then you would travel somewhere. I remember traveling to cities and I would get there and I wouldn't know what I was looking for or where anything was. But I remember always kind of knowing that if I wandered around enough, eventually I would stumble onto like a street or a neighborhood mm -hmm. and it would it would all be there. Right. You know, it's like You'd you find everything it. cool. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, I think you're right. Maybe things don't have to be quite as concentrated because if you're going to a city, you can just sort of look online and, you know, and and places know you'll be able to find them. Right. And yeah, I mean, I think that that's good and bad. I mean, in some ways, you know, it, there's a certain community that's, you know, really incredible when... Um, these people and places are physically together. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, I think it's, you know, sometimes I imagine what, it, you know, it, these kids who are growing up in places where just they have no community and they don't relate to anybody. And it's really incredible that they can get online. As many problems as we see with the internet and social media, it's incredible that it's a, a channel for people um, who don't have that community physically around them to be able to like go online and find, you know, just find this world that they can relate to. Agreed. Um, and hopefully also it disperses um, these uh, businesses and uh, and just hubs and community centers more widely around, you know, around cities and, and makes them more available to people. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, it, it's, I guess it's just different. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely different. So how did you eventually kind of focus your attention more towards animal rights or I don't know if you, that's the only issue. Obviously, you're you're interested in liberation on a universal level, but right. what what drew you so specifically to animal rights? Well, um, I mean, and you're right. I'm still interested in all issues, but I've cle clearly focused a great deal of my attention over the past decades to animal rights, and you know that happened. Um, I I had I had always loved animals, and mm. I had always um, just gravitated towards wanting to protect animals when I saw the opportunity to do so. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I, I think, well, I, I, I guess there, I'd always sort of said growing up, like someday I'm going to be a vegetarian or someday I'm going to, mm. you know, someday I'll be involved in this. But, and it was always said with a lot of, you know, passion and intention. And then honestly, I would just forget by the next day. <laughs> I think my mom had heard me say dozens of times when I was maybe 12, I'm not eating meat anymore. And then the next day I would just forget and I'd go to McDonald's. <laughs> um, and well, that might or may not have been meat. So right. <laughs> good point. 
Um, and um, then when I was, um, I was in 11th grade and I had moved to Denver at this okay. point. And um, my boyfriend, my high school boyfriend and I, um, and he was also very into like the punk scene and the skate scene and, you know, mm -hmm. all of these things. We snuck into um, a showing of Faces of Death. I don't know if you have heard of that. I don't think I have. Um, it was this series of films that were supposedly made up of real footage of, of people dying, people okay. dying and being killed. Wow. Um, and honestly, now it's hard to even wrap my head around why I, I would have wanted to see anything like that. Um, but I think at the time, I remember it was always sort of, you know, back in the days before the internet, mm -hmm. you would always hear about faces of death and they were these like VHS, you know, like underground tapes that people mm -hmm. would kind of, you know, it, it, you'd hear that somebody was watching it at a party or something and everyone kind of laughed and always said, oh, it's so obviously fake. Mm. And he and I, again, I think it was rated X and we were too young and we snuck in. I remember just thinking like it, it was going to be funny that it, everybody always said it's so obviously staged, it's ridiculous, you'll right. laugh. But um, then I remember being in there, and when I was seeing this this footage of people, you know, supposedly like dying by accident or being killed, I remember thinking that whether it was staged or real, just all of this death was horrible. It was gruesome. It wasn't mm. funny. It wasn't. It was just repulsive to me and. What made it so much worse was that we were in this theater full of people who were just laughing at it, mm. you know, who were like just just right. cracking up at, you know, even if it was fake, right. these scenes of death and suffering. And it, it, it was just horrible to me. And then there suddenly there were all these scenes of animals, animals being killed in slaughterhouses. And I remember thinking okay, with the footage of people, I can tell myself that maybe this is all fake. Right. But with the footage of animals, I know that they don't have a reason to fake any of this. This happens. This happens every day. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in the back of my head, I always knew that this happened. But anytime I would start to sort of feel uncomfortable and think about what happened to animals, um, you know, before they got to my plate... I would just kind of think about these nice scenes of animals on farms and grazing. And I thought, you know, they probably just at the very least make their lives so nice until the very end. You know, I'm sure it's just like a few bad seconds for them and then whatever. Right. And what I was seeing was as bad as anything I had ever seen in a horror movie. It was devastating. It was terrible. It was, you know, just these beings in agony and so afraid mm. and like I said it was so obviously real mm -hmm. and again the people around me were just laughing mm. and then after seeing all that um you know after seeing cows and pigs they cut to a scene of a woman um in a kitchen like washing vegetables at a sink and there were a, there was a little pen on the floor filled with adorable little puppies like little dogs running mm -hmm. around and this woman, you know, she's she takes the vegetables and she's chopping them with a knife. And then suddenly she p 
picks up the puppies one by one and dismembers them alive with the knife, just kills them, skins them with this knife. And they're screaming and, and she just dismembers them and drops their bodies into this pot of boiling water on the stove. What? And it was honestly at the time probably one of, it was probably the worst thing I had ever seen in my life. Yeah, that's insane. Um, especially because uh, I had grown up with dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, I had always had dogs. And, I mean, we had a family dog from, you know, the moment I was born who mm-hmm. um, I was so bonded with. Mm-hmm. I had a series of dogs after that, sometimes many at a time, who were just my family. Yeah. And... You know, I, again, when it came to sort of farmed animals, I, you know, I liked them, but I wasn't that familiar with them. Mm-hmm. And I could sort of let myself believe that maybe they were different. But with dogs, I, I had bonded with enough dogs to know that they were intelligent, that they mm-hmm. were loving, that they, you know, if I, if you accidentally stepped on their paw, they screamed in pain. If right. you, you know, cuddled up with them you know they licked your face it it was just (laughs) I knew dogs and and you know I was expecting the narrator to come on and say that this woman was a serial killer or something and instead the narrator started talking and explained that this was taking place in another country and that eating dogs was um, a custom there that Mm -hmm. it was that it was normal Mm -hmm. and he basically he said you know um you might be shocked by this, but this is no different to the people where this is taking place than eating a cow or a pig or a chicken is, you know, if you live in North America. Mm. And he said, and after I thought about that, I was shocked by this at first, but, you know, when I thought that it, when I realized it was no different, I sat down and had dinner with the family. And then it shows footage of this family sitting around a table eating dinner mm-hmm. they're eating they were eating the dogs and they look but you know it just looked like any normal family having dinner and I was devastated mm. um I couldn't accept I, I knew he was right mm-hmm. about it being the same but I couldn't accept that it was okay yeah um and and, you know, I mean, and he kind of touched on this, but he, he said, you know, these other animals, it's not like they don't feel pain like dogs do. It's not like they don't, you know, he's like, there's no scientific reason for why we have this bias. This is a cultural bias. And I, I hated it. Mm. I, I was furious, but I had to, I, I knew he, I knew that was true. Right. And. So how did that influence your behavior afterwards so I was so disturbed by this more disturbed honestly than I had almost ever been by anything and I honestly didn't feel okay again I didn't feel normal again for over a month Mm -hmm. there was not a moment of the day when I was awake where I felt like where I didn't feel just this sickness and Mm -hmm. heaviness and I remember I went home um and I couldn't tell my mom you Mm -hmm. know and like you know I had normal teenage you know ups and downs with my family but I mean I was my family's close and I remember that I couldn't tell my mom about this and I was so devastated but I snuck into this movie Mm. and you know I had I was like I was doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing so I felt like I couldn't talk about it Mm. and 
I was just so upset and I couldn't talk about why I was upset. And I, the next night, and I remember, uh, you know, walking out of that movie and saying, I am never eating meat again. That's it. I'm done. And the next day my mom, you know, made dinner and I sat down and she put this plate of steak in front of me and just without thinking I started to eat it. And then suddenly everything clicked and I pushed it away and I was like, no, never again, mom, I'm not eating meat anymore. And she had heard me say this so many times (laughs) and she was very nice and said, okay, well, you know, yeah. Okay. We'll see. And yeah. I think expected me to forget about it, but I didn't. Got it. And so from there, it was, I read a book called Diet for a New America that really delved into, you know, beyond my initial emotional reaction. I started to learn about um, the meat industry and the dairy industry and the egg industry and, um, you know, just the way that animal agriculture not only impacted the animals, but how it impacted the environment and um, mm-hmm. and of course that's something we talk about a lot more now but mm-hmm. in the mid 90s I really don't think that that was a topic of conversation no, for most people and so that blew my mind and um, it talked about the workers and how this was just one of the most devastating terrible industries for workers and by the time I got through that book I mean it, I just felt that this was a cause that had such far-reaching impact that it, it just became my my passion wow yeah so how did you get to PETA from there? Um, well, that led to me um, you know, getting involved in animal rights activism. Mm-hmm. And throughout college, you know, for and for the you know, for the rest of high school, through college, through the handful of years after I, you know, I was a vegan and I did animal rights stuff when I, you know, when I was able to. Um, and once I graduated from college, I moved to Washington, D.C. because I just I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to do something that had, you know, that was that was helping the world, that had an impact. Um, and I, you know, I, I felt that I would like to do something with animal rights if I could. But honestly, I didn't have the specific career in mind. I just thought I, I need to, you know, I, I just won't. I think this actually to sort of go off on a little bit of a tangent, but I think with so many people who are activists, there's this similar thread, whatever, whatever you're doing um, or activists, artists, you know, mm-hmm. I think sometimes you feel so compelled to do something that it's the only way you can kind of be at peace. Mm. That it's like if you're not doing whatever it is that you feel like you've been called to do, you can't relax. Right. And that's just how I felt about activism and especially animal rights activism. I felt like if I, it's this funny, you know, paradigm. It's like if I was doing animal rights activism full time, if I was fighting for, for the world full time, I could relax. And so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, um, yeah. So not really knowing what that was going to look like, I moved to Washington, D.C. because I just knew that that was, you know, that there were so many different um uh, groups that were located there mm-hmm. and um and I felt like that would be a good place to start yeah and I really wanted to work for PETA um I I just um had really uh admired PETA and um felt that they were doing incredible work for so long but I but they were located their their main headquarters and they still have a headquarters here but was in Norfolk Virginia and this is mm. before they had offices um in Washington DC and LA like they do now yeah um, so I, anyway, I, I didn't necessarily see that being a possibility, but I, I moved to Washington DC, mm-hmm. um, without a job and <laughs> just sort of took the first thing I could get 
which um, was this you know job working as an assistant to the chairman of so, like a political research firm that I, mm-hmm. I just it was a job I did not enjoy mm-hmm. um, and just spent as much time as I could looking for a job that I could be passionate about yeah um, and after about a year um, I ended up seeing um, an advertisement for a, a job that would be with PETA and it would be located in Washington DC um, even though they didn't have an office there at the time and so mm. it was this whole thing I applied for that and um, it, it was funny because when I went into their office to interview you know I like I took a couple days off and went in and um, did a working interview from their office and at some point on the first day they said Oh, by the way, um, that job that we advertised for, that you're here to interview for, actually, we decided to, to just not have it anymore. It's, it's yeah. not, it's not, you know, it no longer exists. Yikes. And I was like, wait, what am I doing here? Yeah. And they said, we actually have a couple of other jobs that we think that you, like, should really consider. And even though the office is here, we know you live in Washington, D.C., you thought this office, you know, this job was located there, so... If you want to do one of these, we'll, we'll let you do it from there. Cool. And one of the jobs they put in front of me, I read the description and I was like, this is my dream job. I didn't even know this existed. I didn't know this was a job. Hmm. And it was basically um, a, a campaign, what they call a campaigner position hmm. that involved um, traveling around the country and the world, uh, just doing animal rights campaigns, leading... Uh, demonstrations, talking to the media, organizing with activists, um, just, yeah, uh, basically kind of being a road warrior for animals. Wow. <laughs> um, and That's awesome. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, the incredible thing was that it, it was, it was like, it was like I had, someone had it was like I had written out the job that I wanted, only totally. I, I hadn't even realized that it existed. Right. And there it was just kind of right in front of me. And so um, that was... What year was that? Oh, God. What year? I, I mean, it was... I guess I've been there 12 and a half years now. Wow. Yeah. So... Amazing. Yeah. And so now you're in a position... like, And so throughout this time, you've been part of some major campaigns at PETA. And when I think about animal rights and extremism, and you've said, you know, that is language that you're very familiar with. Yeah. Um, and certainly PETA, I think of like Greenpeace is to the uh, environment as PETA is to animal rights in yeah. a certain way. Would you say, agree with that? Totally, yeah. And so there's kind of like, yeah, no holds barred and you take some major risks and, and really go out and, and make big statements. Um, what are some of the statements you've made that you're proud of that have really made an impact, you think, in terms of PETA's mission? Well, I mean, so PETA's philosophy is a philosophy of animal rights, animal liberation, which doesn't just mean, okay, well, we should treat animals better. It is the premise that animals exist for their own reasons. They're individuals. PETA is very, I guess, what you call animal rights, as opposed to maybe animal welfare, which is, you know, just trying to treat animals better. So is domestic of animals uh, also an issue that PETA confronts in terms of like that being in, almost in service to humans having a pet? I mean, that's a great question. A lot of times people sort of think that PETA is totally, a, you know, they're like, PETA wants to take your pets. That's not true. <laughs> I mean, we encourage people to 
adopt companion animals. We are against the the industry of breeding animals mm. um, for pet. I mean, first of all, just because you have millions of animals dying right. every year because totally. you know in, in shelters because they don't have homes, and also because that. Yeah, I mean, the pet industry, if you know, you go to a pet store, it it encourages us to treat animals as objects. You know, mm. I mean, people buy, we see the worst of it. We see people buying puppies on a whim and then, you know, uh, they get home and realize that they actually have to take them outside several times a day and that it's work and that it's noise and it's dirt, you know, that there's, you know, that suddenly yeah. their house is dirty. So, I mean, we, yeah, so so we absolutely are opposed to um, this idea that animals should be commodified. That said, I mean, dogs and, and cats have been domesticated for a long time. Yeah. The, there are so many of them here now. They need homes. They need us. Like, we absolutely are in favor of people who can provide good, loving, safe homes, you know, going out and adopting animals and mm. caring for them. And, you know, I mean, that's, you know, so it's... I mean, and I get that that's a lot to sort of wrap your head around. It's not, you know, you can't really say that in a soundbite. There's some complexity there. Yeah, I mean, basically, I think the easiest way to sum it up is to us, animals should never be commodities. They should never, you know, I, the very idea that we can own an animal is problematic because, mm. you know, that, that, the idea of owning another living being is obviously wrong for so many reasons, mm. um, you know, and so when it's in an animal's best interest to, um, you know, to be a part of, of, of a human family, a human household, which I think we can say for dogs, mm. for cats, it obviously is, um, you know, for exotic animals, it's not, yeah. um, you know, th then we're in favor of it. Interesting. Yeah. So I started this podcast by um, just doing a land recognition for the indigenous uh, folks that have um, been here before us, before settlers came into this area of California. And I think about indigenous culture as um, treating um, plants as well as having their own consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. And having their own... Um, yeah, kind of individuality, one could say. And there's a lot of communication with plants and the uh, divinity of our, our natural environment is certainly the divinity of our trees and our, our flowers yeah. and so much around us. Do you find the, a distinction between kind of the consciousness of a plant versus the consciousness of animals and humans? Well, I mean, I would say that I think we can all see a difference between um, the, you know, the reaction that happens or, you know, or what we see in front of us and our own response to putting a knife into a carrot versus putting a knife into a chicken, mm. a live chicken. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I think um, there's clearly, there is clearly a, you know, a, a difference in, um, the pain and suffering that we're able to perceive when right. when that happens, you know, I think, um, I I mean, I, it's interesting the way the way you phrase you know you phrase that and sort of um, to you know to tie in indigenous cultures and right now we are clearly in um, a global emergency, a yeah, catastrophe, absolutely, and that has been brought about largely by. Um, this human um, 
this human-centric, human, -centric, human uh, I, I would say a viewpoint of human supremacy. Mm -hmm. The idea that we can do anything we want right. to the animals, to the, the land, to the plants, to the air, you know, right. the, that everything is here for us to consume recklessly. Right. And, you know, and that to question that is, um, you know, is just unthinkable is a sin is exactly yeah. and and therefore that we can we you know we don't have to think and so mm -hmm. you know i think that um i i think we i think we to, to save to save the planet to save our own lives to save everything i really do think we need to shift to um again not it's i, I guess i would just say you know a view, the the idea that um we need to stop seeing humans as you know the only um as the only beings who have true value or true you know and and i think that that goes for not exploiting animals mm -hmm. but also you know even if even if we don't you know even if we think that plants have no um feelings it doesn't mean that we need we should exploit the land exploit the plants exploit the trees i mean right. i think we need to start assigning a lot more value to the entire natural world. Right. Yeah, I think there's an interesting conversation there around um, how we approach resources. Mm -hmm. And when I think about the treatment of animals in regards to the industrialized um, meat industry, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah, there's, there's appalling treatment, right? It's really horrific. Um, and we're now in this movement where folks are saying, well, we can reverse climate change by planting tri trillions of trees, one trillion trees, and we can sequester enough carbon out of the atmosphere to really be healthy for all humans and, and animals. And ultimately, that's that's an agricultural process, right? Like right. that's like a <laughs> mass planting. Yeah. And so it's, it's fascinating to me, I, I, maybe we're like past this point of no return and when it comes to global warming, and we're at this, as you said, catastrophic moment where we need to take um, really dire moves and, and make major moves in terms of um, supporting our humanity. Um, and I guess the other component of this is thinking about, well, how are we to consider feeding humanity? And what are, what are the productive ways to do that? And I wonder, um, I guess, when I think about feeding humanity, um, there's so many different approaches to do it, but it seems like it's, we can't possibly do it without farming and without industry. And a lot of folks speak on um, you know, the needs for certain types of fertilizers and pesticides that might not be good for our environment or our bodies, but are necessary to feed populations like those that we have in our country and others mm -hmm. um, that are just exploding. And so are you someone who, who sees kind of our human population being part of the issue? And do we need to actually have less human beings in this planet to survive? I mean, you know, I, I think that every, um, well, I, th I think that we keep seeing studies that tell us that we're beyond capacity yeah. and um, that we're, we're growing at a rate that we can't sustain. Um, that said, we also keep seeing studies that tell us that if we were to switch to a 
mostly plant-based diet throughout the world that we actually would have we would have the resources to feed the world. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things that was alarming to me when, um, again, when I first started learning about animal agriculture, was the fact that, you know, I knew people were starving or food deprived across the world. I didn't realize that in so many of these countries, their plant food staples were going to feed livestock. Right, totally. And and the fact is to feed to feed animals for much a much lo- smaller return on on you know the the food that was coming coming out. Right. And so on one hand I you know I I think we can all probably agree at this point that it's responsible to um, be taking a more mindful approach to um, to population, you know, to, to our population numbers and, you know, to be trying to make sure that we, um, have a global population that we, that we can take care of, that we can sustain. But at the same time, I think we should also be looking at how we can modify, um, the, you know, the way we eat, the resources we use to sustain the population we have. Um, you know, I think, I think we need a very holistic (laughs) approach that, you know, that, that, um, I mean, yeah, if, if the, the, we really may need to, to you know, to try and um, stem population growth. But we also, if we, if we can do things that will provide resources, that will feed the people who are hungry, that will, that will preserve the earth for the people that are here, mm-hmm. we need to do that, whatever right. the numbers are. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think it, like, there are all these kind of like con- compounding ingredients that kind of run up against each other, right? And that's like, okay, well, all right, we need to produce, you know, enough protein for the population. And what does that look like? And what, you know, are there additives that might be required or certain, like, less nutritional components so that we can get the output necessary to feed the population or something like that? And I just, I, I, I keep running into, I don't know, it's not roadblocks, but it's just like, if this, then that, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay, if we're going to move to a more plant-based diet, does that then mean we need to be producing more soy? Does that then mean, mean like, other sort of forms of protein? Um, what are they? Can we do them in an organic way, you know, for this population? I don't know. I've heard mixed mixed perspectives on that. Well, I mean, it absolutely, we, we can. But also, you know, I think one thing that's great, and one thing that I find very, I mean, um, my my work can involve a lot of um, a lot of sadness and a lot of very um, devastating facts and figures mm-hmm. and and information. But at the same time, one very exciting thing about um, being in this um, in this movement and in this work right now is how much innovation right. um, we're seeing. And uh, one of the biggest areas is in food and right. in the fact that we're seeing the development of things like lab meat, right? where you can produce this protein in a totally clean environment, mm-hmm. um, an environment obviously without, without the pesticides, without the, you know, the fertilizers, without the, without these things that are, that are in question in the first place. I mean, totally. we, we have this technology um, that's being developed that um, can, uh, you know, that will help us feed the world and will help us do it without this massive 
waste and pollution and suffering and um, and just environmental degradation Absolutely. that we're seeing right now. Yeah. So that's something that's very exciting. As, as much as I, you know, just see things every day that are um, unthinkably sad, it's, it's also, you know, it's very exciting to see some of the things that people are developing in response. So I, I really appreciate you bringing that up. So yeah, I think I associate PETA often with the kind of like shock factor yeah. and like messages of like, you know, we need to rethink how we approach our treatment of animals. Yeah. Um, are there um, projects and messaging that is more oriented around here solutions, um, you know, and, and presenting kind of like the positive side <laughs> that might not even involve animals that might just say, hey, like we support the impossible burger or like. Let's, you know, like eat organic veggies. Here's a voucher to get them cheaply. Yeah, you know, um, actually, I mean, and that's a great point. It's obviously like PETA, um, I mean, we've realized for a long time that sometimes to get people's attention, you have to bring information to the public in a way that is um, very bold Mm -hmm. and sometimes shocking, um, especially to get people to pay attention to issues that they'd really rather not know about Mm -hmm. and to get the media to pay attention to them since, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of times, you know, if you bring them facts and figures, they just completely ignore them. But if you, um, you know, bring a bunch of activists wrapped up like bloody pieces of meat on the sidewalk, suddenly everyone's looking. Right. So, you know, I think people do sort of associate PETA with um, these like shocking campaigns. But one thing I like about PETA is that whenever we present a problem, we also present a solution or an action step or something you can do. We don't just say, look at these animals who are suffering terribly. We say, here's who you can write to about this. Mm-hmm. Um, here's, here is the change you can make in your own life to, to not support this, whether yes. it is buying cruelty-free household products or, you know, um, you know, not buying wool or, you know, whatever it is, there are always action steps. Cause I don't really think it's fair to present people with, um, just misery and devastation totally. and not, not tell them how they can help. Um, what are some of the most important action steps you think people should be considering, um, right now? I mean, I think, um, I mean, I, I think the sort of the easiest thing is um, just looking at what you eat, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, we all eat, or, you know, most of us eat every day, several times a day. Um, and from issues of cruelty to animals to, you know, environmental impact to, um, you know, workers' rights, across the board, you are having a positive impact when you eat vegan, mm. when you choose to eat plant-based. And the fact is that for most of us now um, here in, you know, in the United States and in, um, in North America and Europe, that is so accessible. Mm. Um, it has just become, and, and I mean, of course, we're in a time now when every, every day it seems like it's getting more accessible. Companies are responding to, to this demand, adding plant-based items to their, their product lines. Fast food places are adding, you know, plant-based items to their menus. So this is all very available, and it's something that, again, it's even if you have a packed schedule from morning until night, I mean, you're going to eat at some point. You can just make better choices about what you eat. Mm -hmm. And it may seem like a small thing, but it actually has a huge impact. I mean, animal agriculture um, is one of the 
top causes of uh, you know the emissions that cause climate change. Right. Um, I mean, according to the USDA, uh, animal agriculture is the number one um, culprit behind polluting uh, natural water sources in the U.S. Right. Uh, and so, I mean, you can you can absolutely have an impact by doing that. But I think by being a conscious consumer in every way, I mean, whether we like it or not, right now, if we're living here in the United States in this in this culture, we're living in a you know a, a capitalist money driven society, and one of you know one of the ways that we can get these uh, you know these large interests that have so much impact, the, the way we can get them to listen to us is by um, supporting good things and you know with when we spend our money and refusing right. to support boycotting things that are wrong we vote with our wallet exactly and mm-hmm. so we can support you know small ethical companies we can um you know when we give our money to these bigger corporations we can make sure we're, we're only doing it when they're doing something right yeah um and we can boycott them when they when they're doing something wrong and let them know why i mean that's why you know, I mean, again, whether you're talking about food, whether you're talking about, you know, picking cruelty-free household products, um, you know, uh, whether you're talking about your wardrobe, um, and even just, you know, the the, the little things that, that people, uh, I think so in the past, just so often did without thinking, I mean, um, using animals for entertainment, even, you mm. know, I, it's, like rodeos and exactly sea and, World and circuses and, all that. and yeah. you know I mean I think that um, it's such an easy choice for us to not do things like that, but it I mean it, it you know it's oh well I'll do this or I'll do something else to you know over the weekend but literally for these animals it is a lifetime of suffering if mm-hmm. we support that and again I think that all of this contributes to. Um, if we refuse to be part of things like that, we're taking steps towards um, towards not towards towards not endorsing the speciesist view of the world, right. where again humans just have free reign to do anything just because we want to. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. Like I, I grew up in Boston, and there was this greyhound race t- track outside the city that we would drive by, and it's now gone. And I don't know what the fate of greyhound racing is in America. But dogs being one of the closest things to humans in terms of our connection to animals, uh, it's fascinating to realize, I think, you know, that greyhound racing is definitely not as popular as it was 20, 30 years ago. Um, And certainly in Boston, it's not because the racetrack's no longer there. And um, just recognizing, yeah, these changes that can be made, not just in our daily routines, but also in this entertainment side is is fascinating right and they have a direct impact on the animals but like i said i mean i think they have a larger impact just on you know on world thought about Mm -hmm. about what is and isn't okay Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think that's so important and look i mean you know and we see the way things like we see the way that's um changed the game for um you know for for oppressed people yeah you know um just the fact that you can change laws, you can change, you know, customs, but also there needs to be this shift in perception. Um, yeah, it's also interesting how meat almost like occupies this place of royalty in the 
sense of the meal, right? Like right. being served a fat steak, right? Is kind <laughs> yeah. of like the pinnacle of you know divinity or like a you know piece of a lobster, right? Or like there are these thoughts about what are elegant meals, and so often um, meat is an integral part of that. And I also think about privilege in regards to um, those who maybe haven't grown up with great food on their table, whether it be plant-based or not, um, and that sense of um, wanting to catch up or, or, or if they are ever shifting um, into places of privilege where they might not have had that previously, that desire to kind of experience the, the life of royalty yeah. eating a fancy steak, right? Or whatever that might be. Yeah, totally. So it's like, what it, yeah, what, what, what is the, the role of replacing, like, what do we replace that with? Well, first of all, that's a great question. And I would say that um, it's interesting to see how these industries exploit that. Mm-hmm. How, for instance, um, you know, the fur industry is majorly in decline right now. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. out of favor and they are trying so desperately, among other things, to market themselves to the African-American community as um, a way to show that you've made it and a symbol of you know, status. And they right. literally, these documents came out that showed that they were paying people in, in um, California and New York to uh, frame the fur bands as racist. Hmm. And, you know, I mean, I would encourage people to, um, you know, who want to know more about about those things to um, look at the writings of some of the African American activists who, um, you know, reacted to these things and just called out, you know, the again the fur industry um, for using their communities in mm. this way and for mm. trying to pander to them in this way and it's it's just really um, it, and just it, to, for exploiting that um, you know for for just exploiting. Mm. Uh, you know, people in that way. Um, and anyone who does want to know more about that, I mean, the um, there's a group called Black Veg Fest based in um, New York City that, mm. I mean, they, you know, they made some amazing statements about that. Um, there's an activist called Vigilante Vegan. Mm. Um, and um, he, he wrote, I think, an op-ed about it that was incredible. Um, and... Um, yeah, there, there are a variety of groups that spoke to that. But so it's interesting how, you know, again, these companies will sort of pinpoint mm. um, things like that and kind of exploit them. And I think that um, there, there are groups that are addressing that in really wonderful ways, like, um, again, Black Veg Fest. Uh, there's a group called Food Empowerment Project um, that... Um, oh, Hip hop is green, and have, that have identified the fact that um, these industries sort of pinpoint vulnerable communities and target them, right. whether it's with fast food, whether you know it's with you know trying to paint something like fur as a status symbol, right. um, and you know I think that really. Um, in terms of what we you know what we replace these things with, I mean it's. If you look at the politics of food, the psychology of food, um, you know, and and the way again that it's um, the way that people can almost become addicted to to unhealthy foods, and then the mm-hmm. impact that has on you, and and the impact that poor health has on taking you out of, you know, sort of out of the game in terms of having energy to 
um, you know, to be involved in your community, to be involved in political movements. You know, I think it's all very interconnected. And I think that we need to um, sort of, yeah, take the, the shine off of like, oh, it's so great to have a big steak or a big burger or whatever and say, you know, it's, it's great to be able to get up and feel healthy and have energy and be able to like put time in with your family, your community, your kids, um, to be able to, um, to feel good and be athletic and live a long life. And if you look at, um, just a lot of, a lot of revolutionary political figures and movements over the years have, you know, emphasized eating a a healthy vegan or vegetarian diet for those reasons, Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, because people were being duped into thinking that um, you had made it if you're able to like eat all this food that then has this terrible effect on you. And like I said, mm. kind of takes you, takes you out of the game because you're dealing with the health issues that come on the side. Right. Um, it's, all, it's all very interconnected um, as we keep kind of coming back to. But, totally. um, and I think that, I mean, I think society as a whole, we kind of need to do that. We need to start viewing... Um, sort of less viewing food as something that we aspire to and more viewing food in terms of what it can do for fueling us, you mm-hmm. know, for fueling our lives. Yeah. Um, and that's a very different approach. It is a different approach. It's also thinking, I mean, there, food is one of the most emotional things, I think, in our culture, right? Like, we all have some sort of emotional connection to food, taste and memory and tradition and celebration. Or um, sometimes food comforts us, of course, comfort yeah. food or... Uh, replaces sexuality or replaces other things like we go to food for a lot um, it can numb us out and so I, I, I think when when people look to a plant-based diet how do they look how is it oftentimes diet the word diet um, can be associated with disordered eating right because it re- means that you're setting rules up against you know how what you put into your body in a way that um, has a little bit of a, a controlling aspect to it, right? Totally. And it's like very much mm, oriented around discipline and certainly health, but also sometimes that's mental and sometimes it's more than just what's the fuel for your body. Yeah. How do you disassociate that and and make you know a plant based diet be something that isn't necessarily rooted in wanting to lose weight or disordered eating, yeah. but rather something that's a form of activism and f- beyond one's own needs, but also something that supports the world. No, that's a great question. And I think so often when people, you know, if I, I less these days, but in, you know, when I told people I was vegan, a lot of times their response is, Oh, well, what do you eat? Mm-hmm. And to me, it's always been, but I mean, what don't I eat? There are like a few things I don't eat, but I mm-hmm. feel like there's just this world of options for me. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, first of all, I think that we, you know, those of us who advocate for, you know, a vegan diet, a plant-based diet, need to stop framing it in the terms that have been set by uh, the meat industry, the dairy industry, the egg industry. Right. They, they've, they cast it in, you know, sort of a light of deprivation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, deprivation, starvation, whereas... Um, yeah, to, I, I think that, um, we need to, um, help people realize that it's empowerment, mm-hmm. you know, it's making, um, it's about making choices that are good for the world and good for yourself and, um, and yeah, absolutely not part of that 
starvation and deprivation mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think, and one thing that's sort of interesting to me on that note too is I feel like um, I, I've, I've talked to a lot of guys who've said that, you know, that um, eating plant-based or eating vegan or not eating meat has always been sort of pitched to them as, oh, it's, you know, it's not manly to not, mm, it's not manly to, you know, it, it's like a, and sort of, yeah, it's, oh, it's a diet thing. It's a female thing. It's, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Um, so we, we sort of attach these stigmas right. um, to plant-based eating as if it's something, um, yeah, that involves deprivation, that involves, uh, yeah, that involves lack, that involves, mm-hmm. and again, that's, you know, that's not, that's not manly because it's, because it's, uh, yeah, because there's this whole mythology of meat being, you know, being something that makes you strong and virile. And right. so I think that's interesting, too. I mean, I think we need to recast it in that way as well. The fact that it's not, you know, um, not this gendered thing. Totally. And um, and we also need to look at the idea of, of why it's looked, why why do, why is it looked down on? If it, if it was a female thing, why would we be looking down on it in the first place? And totally. why do we see it as this female thing? Right. Um, which I think has everything to do with the fact that so many people do come at it for reasons of compassion and thoughtfulness mm-hmm. and mindfulness. And culture has wanted to tell us for so long that those things were A, female, and, right. and B, therefore negative. Right. Um, and I think there's just so much to look at there. Yeah, there um, is. That's very... It's very interesting. It is. I have a friend who just shared a post on Facebook about how he's been, I think, vegetarian his whole life and is committing to going vegan. And um, someone added a comment saying, I've been vegetarian and vegan most of my life, and I'm starting to crave meat, so I'm going to treat myself to a piece of meat. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious if that ever comes up for you or you know, if, if it comes up for others, like how you suggest they approach that. I mean, first, I think first of all, these days the the plant based meats have gotten so good mm-hmm. that I never find myself wanting, just being even tempted by by um, actual meat anymore. Because yeah, um, yeah I, I just don't feel like I'm lacking anything. But that said, I mean, if you're if you're vegan for ethical reasons, if you don't eat animals for ethical reasons, and then you find yourself sort of craving the taste of something, I mean, I think people have urges to do things all the time that they know are wrong. <laughs> um, it doesn't mean you act on them, sure. you know? And um, I guess more so, it's not necessarily just a mental urge, but like feeling like, okay, my body's lacking something. Like mm-hmm. I'm really feeling low in iron. I know historically if I've eaten something that sure. you know, it's given me a boost in energy and it's really kind of satisfied that issue. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I've, I've known a lot of people who've worked with nutritionists over, you know, if they feel like they're lacking something. I mean, um, because I think the issue is like, you know, if you're feeling low in energy, um, or I mean, if if you're feeling if you're feeling a certain way and you're like, oh, in the past when I like ate meat, this made me feel better. I mean, that doesn't mean that meat is better for you overall. For sure. So, like for instance, 
you know, if I'm feeling kind of tired, I might know that if I eat like a candy bar, I'll get like a jolt of energy and I'll feel better. But like overall, is it better for me? Well, no, there's probably a better thing that I can do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I I think usually the best way to approach that is just, you know, do your research. Um, You know, there are so many resources now for people who um, are eating plant-based for their health Mm -hmm. um, or to, you know, talk to a, you know, a good vegan nutritionist. But, um, Definitely. yeah, I mean, I think, um, and it's interesting because I think in the past, um, again, when I first went vegan, I used to crave things, um, especially cheese. Yeah. And then I, I read about it and I realized, um, that, that cheese actually had, uh, has an addictive chemical in it hmm. because it's, you know, made of cow, generally cow's milk or some, somebody's milk. Right. But it's, you know, it's meant for baby cows to make them grow very quickly. And so it has something in it that's addictive because it makes them want to drink more and more and then they grow. Mm. Like it's, it's, you know, that's one thing we, we kind of try to distance ourselves from. But, you know, all milk is, is some kind of breast milk for some kind of baby. Right. And babies need to grow. And so just milk has chemicals in it to make people just want more and more and more. And so when people say, oh, cheese is addictive, it actually is. And so I sort of, I remember I would have these cheese cravings and I started to read about it and I was like, oh, okay. So I'm at, it's not just a mental thing. It's actually like this actually has um, chemicals in it that are making you crave it. And then over time the cravings went away um, because I think that, you know, whatever that, um, chemical response was just was finally gone but um but that's always something that's um stuck with me it's interesting yeah yeah so we're coming towards the end here but there's a couple key questions i want to i want to cover the first one and you know this being love extremist radio i ask every guest how do they define love so what is love for you um i mean i think i think love is um, just the, the most incredible power mm. that exists. Um, and I think it's, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's hard to define love as a whole, but I think we can maybe define, I think I can, I can define how, how I see love manifested. Mm. Yeah. Um, and and so to me, that is, um, you know, that, that is doing, just doing what you see in every situation as the highest degree of right, mm. whether it's, whether or not it's easy, whether or not it's convenient, whether or not it's what you want, you know, just, um, just absolute, uh, pure adherence to, you know, the highest good. Mm. And, um, and yeah, and just, uh, you know, so and wanting to, um, do the best for those around you, mm. no matter what. I mean, I guess, you know, one thing that comes to mind is like, um, I mean, I think of my mom as one of the most loving people on earth and, mm. you know, you think of just that aspect of motherhood as, you know, again, like if you're I mentioned before, just being a rebellious teenager and, even when I was just at my worst and least lovable, I remember my mom just loving me, mm. loving me without condition, supporting me, even when it was just, the, you know, and I kind of see, you know, you, if you take 
that attitude and manifest it everywhere. How did your mom come to love your choice of not eating meat? Because, you know, she was loving you and serving you meat for oh, a while. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, I think my mom had everything to do with me um, becoming, <laughs> the you know, someone who cared about animal rights. Mm-hmm. My mom was um, vegetarian uh, before years before I was born, and then she wasn't anymore by the time, um, you know, she had me. But um, she, I mean, she was just a lifelong animal lover. Mm. Um, and um, she, you know, again, she and my dad raised me with animals in the house who, you know, were clearly family. It was never a question. These were, you know, beloved members of the family. And um, she taught, I mean, I remember one of my earliest lessons in kindness I remember being a toddler and I was in the backyard and there were all, always these little snails like out by our tomato plants. And I remember mm. stepping on the snails because they just, it was, you know, they would make this crunch and it was just, yeah. you know, <laughs> like uh, just interesting. And my mom, I remember, came out and said, hey, you know, actually they're alive and mm. they aren't hurting anybody. Mm. They're, they're. Peaceful. They're just trying to live, and so it's you know the nice thing to do is just to let them be. Yeah. And it's you know as a child these things you don't sort of um, you have this innate sense of fairness. I think that you know if someone just explains to you, well, this isn't fair. Later you get older, and there's all this sort of like, well, you're supposed to you know suspend this sense of compassion or empathy or fairness because you know for financial reasons or convenience or you know, but. When someone tells a child, like, this is the nice thing to do and, you know, you should just do it because it's right, I think you're just very inclined to say, okay. Mm. And so I think my mom had everything to do with that. So she was completely supportive um, mm. That's from, beautiful. from the beginning and has, um, yeah, and has continued to be just, you know, one of my biggest cheerleaders with the work I'm doing. Um, and That's again, fantastic. even even when it's not easy as a parent to see some of it, mm-hmm. you know, when she would worry um or uh you know yeah uh, she's just been incredible that's fantastic yeah I, I often think about this idea of just um loving someone and saying you know I'm doing this because I love you but sometimes it's not in service you know it's, it's yeah. <laughs> sometimes like you might be ab- abusing someone and and saying that's love right right and so yeah it, it there's just um yeah, that dynamic I think is is an interesting one and one that um, we often kind of misuse love sometimes. And it sounds like your mom has been an incredible advocate and supporter, and, and not like that. Totally. Um, but but there is a lot of examples of us um, saying we're coming from a place of love, and ultimately it's like control or it's desperation or it's fear yeah. that's really guiding us. Yeah. Well, and I think also, and in terms of you know how you can be loving without being weak too. Like love is powerful. I think sometimes we're conditioned to see love as something sort of weak and, um, you know, and bending and, Mm. you know, but actually I think love is strong and powerful. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to challenge someone. It's all in how you do it, you know? But I think that, um, that love is something incredibly strong and it empowers us to, stand up for what's right totally um and yeah yeah i agree with you i think i think there's 
immense strength. And that's the purpose of this podcast is really to like reclaim the strength of love and to recognize that we can act from a place of um, dignity and, and power with love and, and do that um, in all of our pursuits. Um, so yeah, I, I really appreciate you kind of sharing your perspectives and your work. Are there other things that you'd like to communicate to this audience about PETA or your work or your story that you feel is important for people to take home? And thank you for asking. Um, you know, I guess I would just say that um, I, I, in terms of um, PETA and, and animal rights, you know, animal rights is a social justice issue. And um, I, you know, I think the, so many people are starting to come around to, you know, to realizing Mm-hmm. that I mean um, you introduced me to the word speciesism yesterday yeah I mean and you know I it's I think that we we need to start looking at things again through a lens of um, you know th- that that human supremacy has gotten us to a place in the world that is not actually even good for humans mm. um, and you know, I think if we take a deeper look at these industries that use animals, um, those of us who care about social justice, who care about um, doing what's right, who care about feminism, um, don't want to stand by while um, we see uh, beings who are intelligent, sensitive, who feel fear, who feel pain, um, being exploited for for no reason. I mean, being being forced to suffer when they don't need to. And especially, um, again, just this idea from a feminist perspective that factory farming is, is based on breeding above all. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the fact that at the end of the day, these animals, they're just the, the very concept that their bodies don't belong to them, that we think we can use their bodies, we think we can forcibly impregnate them. I mean, the animal agriculture industry literally impregnates female animals, in many cases, on a device they call a rape rack. Wow. And if that's not enough to make us rethink you know, what, what we're supporting when we use these animals' bodies, I don't know what is. So I just would encourage people to, um, you know, to, to read up on, on these issues and... Um, and again, think not just about the problem, but about how easy the solutions are um, to how easy it is to support them mm-hmm. in our own lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, so often it's just it's not you know you don't have to dedicate your life to animal rights to make a huge difference for animals. Yeah. Um, you can go about your business and basically just you know at that point in the day where you stop and you're about to eat something or about to buy something, you can say, oh, I'm going to get this and not this. Right. Um, it's just it's so easy and it's really empowering actually to know that you can be making um, so much of an impact for animals, for the environment, and again, for human workers, which we didn't get into, but I would very much encourage people to um, look at what Human Rights Watch has said about the meat and leather industries. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're so bad. Um, So it's, you know, I think as we go about our days, you know, doing the art that we do, the work that we do, fighting for the causes we fight for, you can just 
make these small choices throughout the day that can add up to such a big impact. And I do think that that's just very empowering and very exciting. Yeah, that's so, so, so important to recognize that. And just to go back to what we were saying earlier, we vote with our wallets and the decisions we make, whether it be around food or what we wear or where we spend our money and who we're supporting and spending our money. Uh, those are all choices we can make as activists and as humans. And, and we have choice in that, fortunately. So um, we, can, we can be wise about it. Well, Ashley, this has been fantastic conversation. Where's the best place for people to find you? Um, well, people can find um, me on Instagram. Uh, at, uh, my handle is Ash Loves Mongo, and it's the same on Twitter. Great. And I uh, encourage everyone to follow PETA on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, and to look at PETA's website, PETA.org. This is so needed. So thank you for doing this work. Thank you for being a part of it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So to take us out, what's your favorite love song? Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> and such a hard question. <laughs> maybe, I think maybe Love Minus Zero by Bob Dylan. Love Minus Zero. Okay, mm-hmm. excellent. We'll yeah. play that on the outro. Thank you. This has been Love Extremist Radio with Ashley Byrne. I am Ethan Lipsitz. Find me at Ethan, L-I-P-S-I-T-Z on Instagram. And please follow and share this podcast with your friends and fam. Sending love. See you next week. My love, she speaks like silence Without ideals of violence She doesn't have to say she's faithful Yet she's true like ice, like fire People carry And make promises by the hours My love, she laughs like the flowers Valentine's can't buy her In the dime stores and bus stations People talk of situations Read books, repeat quotations Draw conclusions on the wall Some speak of the future My love, she speaks softly She knows there's no success like failure And that failure's no success at all The cloak and dagger dangles Madams light the candles In ceremonies of the horsemen Even the pawn must hold a grudge Statues made of matchsticks Crumble into one another My love winks, she does not bother She knows too much to argue or to judge Midnight trembles The country doctor rambles Bankers' nieces seek perfection 
Expecting all the gifts that wise men bring The wind howls like a hammer The night goes rainy My love, she's like some raven At my window with a broken wing <laughs> 